Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode of Chasing Frets is brought to you by Artistworks. Artistworks is dedicated to providing anyone, anywhere in the world, with affordable, interactive access to some of the greatest music teachers in the world. Their patented video exchange learning platform connects you with master musicians like our guest today, Brian Sutton. Here's how it works. You watch one of Brian's lessons, you film yourself playing the lesson, and then you send it to Brian through the video exchange platform, and Brian will film a customized response directly for you. These video exchanges form the basis of an ever-growing, ever-changing online learning experience that is superior to a real classroom and provides the most convenient and effective way to learn online. So if you want to take your playing to the next level, use promo code PGAW20, that's PGAW20, to save 20% on lessons. This offer expires July 20th, 2020. Hey everybody, this is Jason again with the Chasing Frets podcast presented by Premier Guitar, and I'm here again with my co-host Andy Ellis. How you doing, Andy? Oh, I'm doing well. Amazingly, uh, there's electricity in my loft today. Yeah. Much of Nashville has lost electricity for, I think, now two days. Right, right. Well, strangely enough, our guest this week is also uh, part of the, the lucky ones in Nashville who have uh, still have power, and that's uh, Brian Sutton. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was I was concerned and I was going to call you about an hour ago, but the thing came back on. So that we we were without it for a couple hours this morning, but here we are. There we are. <laughs> so, Andy, tell us a little bit about the topic we're going to be talking about with Brian today. We're going to dive into the wonderful subject of bluegrass rhythm guitar. And in my opinion, there is no finer bluegrass rhythm guitarist to be talking to about this. And I am curious about two things, Brian. Okay. A little bit about what unique characteristics, in your opinion, make bluegrass rhythm guitar different from, say, gypsy jazz or other kinds of acoustic rhythm guitar playing. And how has it evolved over the years? Each player who has contributed something to the sound and to the technique. Wow. So, uh, so this is like a six-part series to get started. <laughs> um, to answer your first, let me. I should maybe I should answer the second one first, as far as like the people involved and sort of how it started. I feel like maybe that that is a better place to start because I do feel like ultimately what does define it are the people that have done it. That's one of the things with bluegrass. It's a folk music, and it's people doing what people do. And sort of like any kind of, I think if you look into any cultures, you know, rhythm, uh, whether it be like South American, African, uh, even into like uh, Scandinavian dance music and things like that. There's just grooves and there's rhythms to study. Indian music, of course, 
um, just grooves the study and it has to do with culture. It has to do with the people that were doing what they needed to do at the time. Uh, but as far as specific things to look at that I like to bring up in this discussion are characters like Riley Puckett and Mother Maybell Carter and uh, Charlie Monroe, <clears throat> just to kind of get the conversation started. They, these were players that kind of, again, for, for where we are in the 21st century, you know, about 100 years or so in, we have the advantage of modern recording. Who knows what was going on, you know, as far as guitar before that. But we can kind of gather from what these folks were doing as things started becoming more recorded in the mid to late 20s through the 30s, which is when most of these people existed. Uh, so anyway, the point <clears throat> the point is, is that Riley Puckett, Mother Mabel Carter, uh, Charlie Monroe all existed in musical entities, duets to full bands that didn't have a bass, an upright acoustic bass like you see now in most bluegrass. And so... What those guys and gal were doing at that time were really filling. They were the band. They were, they were as we look at it now, they were the bass player. They were the sort of rhythm guitar strumming element, kind of the glue to get from one bar to the next and one change to the next and one section to the next. Um, but each one of those people kind of brought to me what are sort of fundamental elements to get to this first question you asked of sort of what, what helps define bluegrass rhythm guitar is different. And again, because there was no fundamental kind of base the way we see it today in bluegrass that was kind of establishing pulse and playing on beat one and three of the bar with a root in the fifth, you know, just that sort of classic kind of folk country bluegrass kind of bass playing. These guys and gal were doing that, but they were also doing a lot of other stuff because they had the freedom to. So especially guys like Charlie Monroe, where it was just he and his brother Bill back in the mid 30s. It's just fascinating to listen to this, to, to see how and listen to how active his bass playing or bass runs were. The, the bass notes that he chose to play within the, the rhythm strum, um, it's just on fire. You know, it's just, it's free. And Riley Pocket was another one, just almost kind of lead lines um, in between chords. Uh, and that just the idea of that is something that still holds true today as far as, again, what defines bluegrass guitar and the options that people uh, exercise as far as something other than just here is fundamental sort of rhythm, tre you know, treading water, boom chuck kind of strum. Um, so it's those characters that define Mother Maybell, the thing that she did a lot that, that folks have carried in is again, kind of a more content, uh, more obvious sort of uh, melodic kind of idea. You know, you think about her Wildwood Flower. <laughs> there's a consistent very obvious kind of churn but a melody playing at the same time that was a lot of what she was was doing as the sort of primary band of the of the carter family was a rhythmic element that was strumming along with melody notes mm. um and so there was you know all those kind of elements come into place now that we look at like what a lot of people consider bluegrass rhythm guitar via Lester Flatt and Jimmy Martin and now into guys like Del McCurry into more modern sort of players that a lot of us look to that define a lot of powerful bluegrass rhythm guitar like Dan Tominski and uh, Tim Stafford with the uh, band Blue Highway and people like that. Um, 
So anyway, I'm trying to sum all this up as far as like an evolutionary kind of look, what we've gone from are our musical entities where there was no bass and the guitar used a lot of that space that was eventually taken over as more, more sort of bluegrass bands came on board with a bass. The bluegrass rhythm got a little more simplified, you know, got more reduced to just roots and fifth, more boom chuck kind of sound. Uh, but still, those elements are in there. So, um, you know. That's a pretty traditional sort of bluegrass run heavy kind of way to play rhythm um, that people still do a lot of these days. But it's I think mm -hmm. the evolution is it's gotten simpler. A lot of what you might look at uh, in real modern bluegrass is is a lot simpler than that. More uh, the pulse is still very kind of heavy into it. Uh, the the pocket is a little more. Um, I guess it swings a little bit less to get specific. Um, this, why, why that's hard to say is because a lot of this is also very, very song dependent as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm going deep here. Sorry. Uh, this, <laughs> that's why we have you. <laughs> um, so as far yeah, evolution is, is, it's generally simplified, but those, but those original elements I feel like are still very much active, just used in a different way because of the way the bluegrass band has kind of evolved. Uh, and to answer your first thing about what those things are that kind of con continued to define how bluegrass rhythm would be different than say, like if I'm playing country rhythm or like, you know, Michael Rowe, your boat ashore and a folk trio or something like that is that's where you get into the sort of the mystery stew that is bluegrass. I have, sometimes I have these wonderings, you know, that we, we all ask like, what is bluegrass? And sometimes I wonder, is it better question to you know, say, why is bluegrass? Why do people, <laughs> why does Jimmy Martin do a, a thing that he does when he's playing rhythm guitar and, and why do I do what I do? Why does Doc Watson, why did he do what he does? Why does Tony Rice do what he does? And it's, you know, it's attitude, it's personality, you know, based on some of these fundamental elements of the right chords in the right place. It is a basic sort of boom chuck pattern, but then all the elements that go into define the character of that, mm -hmm. you know, when a player chooses a, a walking bass run and how they get from one thing to the next. That's a lot to do with their personality. If you want to hear very fiery, just insistent, but great kind of bluegrass rhythm, you go listen to Jimmy Martin because that's the kind of person he was. <laughs> if you want to hear very groovy, melodically and harmonically deep funkiness, you know, you go listen to Tony Rice because that's who he was, who he as a player, who he is as a guy, just, just a, you know, a deep musical dude. And it shows in his playing. Yeah, but, you know, to get specific for people out there, um, the bluegrass sort of feel is essentially kind of a swung, uh, a swung sort of eighth. But even choices for the, what I'm doing here, it's a certain voicing of the G chord with no thirds. That's a fairly modern look versus more of the traditional below and the, and the higher third the voicing of the chord. More roots and fifths is really like a power chord in rock music. Um, usually we use more of a traditional C. You'll see some more modern players kind of favoring some of this, you know, the C9 kind of sound. But essentially, this is a primary kind of 
thing that defines bluegrass is this particular voicing. And even the way I chose to play it to kind of hammer into that low note, that's a real uh, kind of a bluegrass characteristic. And of course, the biggest defining thing is usually at the end of a phrase. G-Run, which that was to go deep into this world. That was sort of the two-note Lester flat version. That gets evolved into like the Red Smiley. There's another Del McCurry. Instead of the E. Um, lots of little variations, but again, that's kind of song dependent. Um, but the, the idea of it still stands true where it's usually at the end of a section, you know, a verse or a chorus, uh, somebody's solo. It's kind of like a, a, a rally cry for the bluegrass band to go, OK, here's the next section and here's what it's going to be. Kind of keeps everybody in line. Mm -hmm. um, so so I know you do a lot of teaching through artist works and you have for quite a while when you have somebody coming in as a student who has all their has the chord vocabulary down, but is looking to get some of that bluegrass feel into it. What are some things you recommend them to do to, to kind of get that feel solidified in their playing? Right. That's again, sort of the mystery of kind of how things swing. We all sort of have to find ourselves in that through a lot of experience. And I think that singing helps. You know, I encourage most students that come through my door here, whether you're focused on rhythm guitar or lead stuff or both is to try to, you know, not try to be a great singer necessarily, but just try to vocalize, try to imagine, you know, um, from the vocal perspective, lots of things like swing, the feel, even down to the emotion and the general character of the song. Um, that helps really define a lot of, again, these sort of driving forces that are not on paper, like choose this voicing at beat three of this bar. No, it's it's really more about what is this phrase right now? How is it being sung? Where are we in the narrative of the song? And how can I use things like that to uh, to help tell that story? Again, that's a, that went way into the deep end of, of potential kind of elusiveness, but but that's it's all a balance of all this stuff. You know, what I try to help folks build is what I call this rhythm. I'm sorry, a toolbox for rhythm guitar, which is recognizing what those choices are because that's really what it is when it comes down to recognizing songs and singers and, and feels and characters and emotion and things like that. As long as my fundamental chords are in the right spot at the right time and my support, that's the other thing about rhythm guitar and if it's bluegrass or country or whatever, or rock and roll, it's a support system. Uh, it's, it, it's whole, whole purpose is to support some other thing that's going on, a, lead, uh, a vocal or a, a the lead player. Um, so anyway, so th those tools again are going to be walking runs and how to recognize the end of the phrase kind of things. Um, as far as again, down to that elusive element of how things sort of swing, to me, that comes into also a lot of study, you know, sort of go listen a lot to Jimmy Martin, go listen a lot to Maybell Carter and Doc Watson and Del McCurry and Tony Rice and Clarence White. All the, you know, this endless number of players that we could go study. Um, and just, you know, just like anybody studies Charlie Parker 
um, in jazz, you know, to sort of find some trends, find some tendencies, like how are, how are they kind of thinking and what is that? When was that used? You know, so those are some things. I noticed, too, something particular about your playing, which uh, stands out to me as a, as a fellow guitarist, but it, it's unique to the bluegrass and flat top tradition, I think, that, that you're so that you represent so strongly, and that is the loose, flexible, relaxed wrist. Because, you know, some acoustic guitar styles have a very locked wrist. Chunk, 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 chunk. Uh, We could say, you know, that maybe have come from Dixieland um, plectrum banjo, that kind of thing. Maybe some of the Django stuff, you know, it's bam, bam, bam. And... You, you're so relaxed, and I, I think that that allows you to hit your bass runs and then go skip over a couple of other strings higher and tickle some harmony. And you're, you're dodging back and forth between the two sides of the guitar, the low strings and the high strings, in a very relaxed way. Can you talk a bit about that? I think that, all, that also may help kind of peel back layers of sort of the the DNA of this music with regards to like the swing and how choices like this are made as far as how I'm physically kind of engaged with the instrument. You know, a lot of the the DNA of bluegrass is, you know, that sort of Scots Irish fiddle tune uh, tradition, you know, it's dance music, you know, it's, it's got a certain kind of bounce and feel. And the way that I feel that helps communicate that is, is a generally looser, uh, looser wrist. It also, I think, you know, for the tradition of, of acoustic music, uh, a looser wrist, especially on an acoustic guitar, is generally going to yield a bigger sound. Um, if I want to hear more sustain out of notes um, and more resonance within the guitar, I'm going to be looser. Uh, like an example, this is me tight kind of. That's a pretty tight wrist versus. together a little more because I opened up that wrist and it, and it flows a little a little better and so also having that openness is also what allows me to kind of jump around and those as far as low to high like you mentioned um, you know as we live in the 21st century and have a lot of this tradition to look at you know there's one of the other big changes from guys like Clarence White and Tony Rice have been sort of cross-picking with inside the boom chuck strum <laughs> And really, the only way to be successful at that kind of going for that sound is opening up your wrist. You know that that's a that's a flow and a swing. That's I don't want to say it's impossible, but tension really gets in your way when you're trying to do that. Excellent. Well, let's kind of wrap up this uh, this episode, Brian. If you could point to maybe, and I know you have people can't see when they're listening, but your background <laughs> there, the wall in your studio is mm-hmm. kind of littered with a, a greatest hits of bluegrass. If there were like two or three records that you could point, maybe some novice bluegrass players too to really uh, kind of listen to for rhythm playing or even play along to some, some tunes, which, which would you, yeah. which come to mind first? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because the, the records, again, as we talked earlier, these are specific records from my childhood and I did just that played along with these records tons of times. Um, as far as like traditional bluegrass, you know, and I mentioned some of those characters, Lester Flat, you know, 
any Flat and Scruggs record, there's great collections from their, their Columbia records and their Mercury records. I would go listen to a lot of that. The other thing that's tricky, when you get into Lester Flat, you need to re remember that he used a thumb pick and a finger pick. He didn't use a flat pick, um, as did Maybell Carter. So that's, you know, we didn't even get into that. But it's uh, but just as far as studying sounds, I think Lester Flat is probably one of the primary, at least in the mid-20th century on, primary kind of figures in bluegrass rhythm guitar. Um, so any Flat and Scruggs, I think uh, Red Smiley in the duet of Reno and Smiley, Don Reno, Red Smiley. I think just because his guitar was so sort of just, you know, mixed out front, which that, that you know, <laughs> that by the way, that's another thing. A lot of bluegrass rhythm guitar players were also the lead singers in their bands. And so, you know, they had a really natural way to kind of accent in between the phrases and use the, 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 the runs and things like that, just because it, it helped them have something to do when they weren't singing. Anyway, Red Smiley's a great character there. He's on the on the wall here. And I can't overlook, you know, as far as two of my big favorites is uh, Tony Rice and Doc Watson. And uh, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Tony Rice and Doc Watson. Doc, you know, very different sounds. Doc Watson has, um, you know, just the, his, his palette is huge. You know, he did a lot of finger style and a, a lot of sort of... Uh, various kind of sounds you know features a lot of various kind of sounds on the guitar more straight rhythm uh, he did a lot of like single note lines in, um, in and around as he was singing beyond just bass runs and g runs i mean really you know flurry kind of phrases in between his uh, uh his singing that that's just great to listen to and it's just doc had such a cool feel the record southbound that's back here is a big one for me it's probably my favorite doc record uh, and to look at Tony Rice, I mean, it's just, it's hard to say enough about him as far as, again, in the 20th century, looking back on all these great people and all these great characters, Tony Rice probably is, for most of us that try to do this this day, um, kind of the main the main guy that really did put a lot of it together. You know, he, he kind of hit the scene back in the mid-70s here, J.D. Crow in the New South, 0044, rounder record, which was sort of put a lot of those guys on the map, he and Ricky Skaggs and J.D. Crow. Jerry Douglas, and just to hear the interplay, that's the other thing about bluegrass rhythm guitar too. I mentioned it's a support system, but it's also, you know, it's, it's another member of the band and it's usually a four or five piece at most six piece, a lot of times acoustic ensemble. And it's a lot about listening and reacting and supporting. Uh, and you hear that and Tony Rice just had such a way to kind of weave everything he did with everybody, no matter what he was playing with. So there's the, the New South stuff, all his old solo records, the, the Bluegrass album band series, especially volume one, two, and three. I would I would go to there immediately. Uh, do not pass go. <laughs> um, the two other records that I would point out as far as just listening to the Tony Rice, and mainly because of what the records are and how exposed he is, is uh, the Skaggs and Rice duet record that's here over my left shoulder and Church Street Blues. Church Street Blues is primarily Rice solo. And again, you get a lot of different kind of looks, a lot of different kinds of songs. Um, his version of Church Street Blues is, is, you know, probably one of the most sought after. Like if, if you're going to try to do anything with bluegrass guitar, rhythm lead or otherwise, you know, just he just he just established so much of a high bar with that one record. And again, the Skaggs and Rice is one that we all look at as far as just the ability just to focus in on him playing traditional music, singing, it's just guitar and mandolin, and it's just mm -hmm. beautiful. 
Well, that's a great way to wrap it up. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Brian. Uh, Brian's going to be back later this week covering a couple other topics. So uh, until then, we'll talk to you guys later. Mm-hmm.